I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Two years ago, Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown fired off a letter to the White House demanding answers as to why President Trump had shut down a unit inside the National Security Council to deal with global pandemics. The move, Brown wrote then, quote, threatens our ability to respond to a public health emergency, end quote. He then added, quote, in our globalized world where diseases are never more than a plane ride away, we must do all we can to prepare for the next inevitable outbreak and keep Americans safe from disease. Brown never got a response, but his 2018 letter stands as one of the many warnings about the prospect of an infectious disease outbreak that were ignored by the Trump administration until it was far too late. We'll talk to Senator Brown about what went wrong inside the government and what the country still needs to do to cope with the coronavirus pandemic. And we'll talk to CNN media correspondent Brian Stelter about the plague of fake news in the midst of the crisis on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You remember after 9-11 when uh, you and I and a lot of other reporters in Washington were digging into all the unheeded warnings about a terrorist attack that President Bush and people at the top of the White House uh, were ignoring? It looks very much like we're in a similar situation right now. Story after story, evidence after piece of evidence emerges of people who were warning about a global pandemic, about how the country and the government needed to be prepared. And the fact is, we weren't. It's becoming more and more apparent every day. And um, I think this is going to be a big part of the ongoing story of this global health emergency. And Trump has been out there repeatedly saying, you know, who, who would have predicted that there'd be a pandemic like that? You know, you, you, what do they say? Lawyers like in trials, you should never ask a witness a question that you don't know the, the answer to. I mean, a lot of people were predicting that this would happen. A lot of experts were predicting it. And um, no question that uh, Sherrod Brown was a, um, a Cassandra when it came to this issue of a pandemic uh, that could really be catastrophic. And the administration came in, I guess, in 2018, they disbanded this office, this global health security office within the the NSC. Now, they've said that it wasn't, uh, they didn't do away with the people who were working on those issues. It was a a reorganization, a restructuring that didn't take away resources from pandemic preparedness. But the reality is there had been one person in charge in the White House 
who was coordinating with all of the other relevant agencies in the government. And anyone who has ever you know, worked in any major organization knows that you have to give you know, responsibility to a senior person to handle these things. Otherwise, it just ends up you know, on the back burner, which I think is what happened in this case. So right. you, need, you need somebody who can say, I'm in charge of doing this. I'm in charge of coordinating responses. And who has access to the president, who can go to the president and say, this is a serious matter. You need to pay attention to this. Now, what happened was John Bolton came in as the new national security advisor. He wanted to be the guy who had direct access to the president on everything related to national security. This did not fall into his ideological wheelhouse. He had his own agenda about things he wanted to do about Iran, about China, about a more aggressive posture and planning for a public health emergency just wasn't on at the top of his to do list. So as a result, although the people were still there, they were lower down on the totem pole and they're reporting to a guy, Bolton, who was not taking this as seriously as should have been. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, the other person in the Trump White House who had his hair on fire about these issues was our one time skullduggery guest, Tom Bostert, who was the Homeland Security advisor, who was also fired by Bolton. <laughs> right. And yeah. he was pushed out by Bolton for the same reason. Um, right. And so, exactly. look, I don't think that uh, that Bolton or anybody else in the White House thought these issues are not important. We don't care about them. But I think what happened was that bureaucratic infighting and doing things like differently from the way the Obama administration did it um, and trying to consolidate power within the White House, that took the front seat. And the threat of a major pandemic, which we are now going through, took the backseat. Exactly. Which is why we definitely want to hear from uh, Senator Brown. He's got a lot to say about uh, both that and where we are, what we need to do, both to bail out the economy from this you know, horrible uh, collapse it's going through, and also to protect the public's safety. Then we're going to talk to uh, Brian Stelter of CNN. Uh, he's got this, uh, he's executive producer on this fascinating new HBO documentary after truth about fake news and um, we certainly have plenty of that in the midst of the pandemic one other matter which i think we want to flag before we get to the guests uh, we've got a show coming up on wednesday with adam schiff chairman of the house intelligence committee who of course has introduced a bill for a 9-11 type commission to investigate the run-up to this uh, global pandemic but also we'll have a lot to say about the other big piece of news that kind of fell through the cracks over the weekend, and that was Trump's firing of Michael Atkinson, the inspector general for the intelligence community. He was, of course, the guy who got the complaint from the whistleblower about the uh, president's machinations uh, with Ukraine and uh, his uh, request for investigations of the Bidens and reported that as an urgent concern. Trump has uh, obviously never forgiven him and took his retribution as he has on others late on a Friday night. And so we'll have a lot to talk about with Schiff there. But um, that's for Wednesday. Right now we have Senator Brown and Brian Stelter. So let's get to it. Thank you. 
We now have with us Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat of Ohio, a previous skullduggery guest in another time and era several months ago. Senator, welcome back to Skullduggery. Good to be back with you. Thank you. A lot has changed since uh, we last spoke to you. Obviously, the uh, pandemic is consuming everything. First of all, where are you talking to us from, and what has your life been like over the last week under all the social distancing restrictions that uh, we've gotten from the White House? Yeah, 10, 11 days ago, I drove back from Washington. Um, I haven't been in a plane in about three weeks, and I uh, don't plan to be anytime soon, but I'm um, at home with my wife and our two dogs. Uh, we go out to walk the dogs. We are lucky enough to have a local grocery store that delivers. So we work from home. She teaches, of course, at Kent State from home. And I uh, work the phones all day and email and work with Governor DeWine and talk to the governor today, talk to um, the health director today um, about what we can do together to um, that it's not being done out of Washington, that this, my state leads them. What's the situation in Ohio, and do you have the ventilators, masks, and other equipment that your hospitals need? Uh, no, no, no state has it. Um, um, no, we, we don't. Governor DeWine, when we only had single-digit uh, numbers of diagnoses, nobody had died at this point. He began to cancel public events and close the schools. Pretty controversial because people said, well, there's nobody that's diagnosed, and the governor's answer because he listened to the public health officials in the state, especially his health director, Dr. Acton, was, we know they're out there. We haven't tested enough. We still haven't tested enough. And um, you move forward on this. But because the president, while Governor DeWine was closing schools and doing what he needed to do, the president continued to say this was a Democratic hoax, continued to say that it was, a, it was another effort to impeach him, continued to deny and obfuscate and do whatever he did. And as a result, we are seven, eight weeks behind on getting the masks we need, the ventilators we need, the testing materials we need. Uh, several Ohio hospitals are now testing. They've developed their own tests with approval and all, but they can't get enough reagent. They can't get enough cotton swabs because this president started us so late and, and responding to this public health crisis. What are the projections in terms of when Ohio is going to reach its apex? And are there any signs, I mean, given that Governor DeWine was took decisive steps early, that you are bending or flattening the curve at all in, in your state? Well, there, there are signs that they flattened the curve, uh, but that's just not good enough. I mean, this, this national goal, when I hear the president stand in front of, stand with these doctors, some of them really good public health officials, some of them less so. And I hear the president give medical advice, which is still shocking to me, even though I, I watch him every day at these things. And I've heard him do it before, but I still can't believe the president of the United States is saying things like, what do you got to lose? You take this medicine. The flattening the curve is simply not good enough. If we flatten the curve, the economy can't reopen and in, in, in robustly in any way, it's, it's, you've got to be bringing these, these numbers of infections down. Um, you, we, we look at what South Korea did and Taiwan and Singapore and Germany mostly did it right. Too many people died, but so, so significantly fewer got sick and died because they widely tested. They, had, they scaled up their testing capacity. They widely tested. Then they began to, um, to do what they needed to do. To, uh, to, to find out 
who in the area interviewing individual people who were sick, who did you contact, who have you contacted to do contact tracing and then put people who are sick in a quarantine and to isolate others in college dorms or, or hotels or wherever. And that's the way you start bringing the numbers down. And that's the only way we'll get the economy up and running. It'll but, save tens of thousands of lives. But, Senator, we haven't done anything like that. I mean, I have not seen anyone even really calling for contact tracing that's as aggressive as it's been in some of these other countries, which, uh, you're right, has made a difference. So it sounds to me like you think that we are way behind the curve in dealing with this after all this time. Yeah, there's no question we're behind. We're behind the curve in scaling up production of ventilators and respirators and masks and needles and maybe not needles. I don't hear shortage there and, 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 and certainly gloves and, and gowns, but we're also far behind on even producing the materials to do this. I mean, I, um, there, there's a, you know, we, we all know and we all remember enough about world war two, how Britain first and then the United States just changed their economies um, to, instead of producing cars to produce tanks and planes. And we won Britain and the U.S. won the war in large part because they could they quickly, as quickly as you could imagine, I guess, moved into that kind of production. The president, Congress, five years after the war, passed the Defense Production Act to give the president the powers to do that even more quickly and nimbly. President Trump has apparently the Chamber of Commerce lobbied him so he wouldn't do this and said, you don't want to the government shouldn't tell businesses what to do. Well, in a national emergency, in a pandemic. The government ought to tell these businesses what to do. You don't you don't take away their businesses. You don't bankrupt them. You say I mean, it's pretty simple. You say, OK, you need to transition here and, and retool. We will guarantee you this amount of sales and then we'll help you help you at the end scale down into the production that you were doing prior to the pandemic. But you need the government. You need the White House doing that. They are both incompetent and I don't know why. The, I mean, I don't know if it's an ideological thing with the president or what it is, but he simply hasn't moved heaven and earth, not even close, to do what you have to do to scale up on production of protective equipment and production of components that go into um, into to broad scale testing. You think President Trump is incompetent, right? I mean, that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, he's, he's both. I mean, he's, he's, he's all of the above. He's, he's surely incompetent. I mean, he's not. I mean, first of all, look at somebody that narcissistic and always pointing fingers has trouble surrounding himself with smart, capable people. I mean, when you rely on your son-in-law who has no experience in much of anything except spending his father-in-law's money, I mean, I don't know what his son-in-law does, but he clearly has no experience in this. When you have um, a number of people at HHS and the FDA and the and I mean, the president has, has run out the career people, the professionals that knew what they were doing and put political hacks in. He has no experience. I mean, well, one of the things I thought about is I contrast Governor DeWine, who just put it out there. Governor DeWine, and I've not always seen eye to eye. I defeated him back in 2006 for the Senate. So we're not political allies, but we are now. We're allies. And in talk, I talked to him today. We talk about every week. And the, Governor DeWine, you look at what experience and character mean. You contrast experience and character in the chief executive in Ohio with experience and character in the White House. And Trump's character means he lies all the time and he can't ever take take responsibility and accept blame and always blames others. 
And his experience means he has no idea how these government agencies work. He has no idea how to scale up what we need to do. He doesn't get expert. He doesn't get the expertise around him because people either don't want to work for him that you can, you can watch Dr. Fauci. He looks sometimes like it's a, a hostage video. He's clearly <laughs> very careful about what he said. Um, Senator- I, I, I look at, I told when I was talking to the health department director today, I said, one of the things I like about you in Ohio is you speak your mind. And she said, yeah, I don't worry that I'm going to offend the governor. Uh, he wants me to tell the truth. In right. contrast that with everyone, particularly Dr. Burks, who is so afraid of offending Trump that, See, sometimes can't speak very directly. Certainly Fauci's doing his best. Burks is doing her best, too. And I think they're all doing their best. They're just, there aren't many of them that are as highly capable as they need to do. Senator, a couple of questions. Uh, before you left Washington, uh, you joined the rest of your Senate colleagues in voting the $2.2 trillion uh, stimulus package. Are we going to need another one? Absolutely. We need another one. And what should it do? Some of more of the same, but it really needs its, this last focus but McConnell's original bill was just another bailout for the airlines to Wall Street, which is what happened a decade ago. Because we said no and negotiated, we got help for individuals, unemployment insurance, um, unprecedented unemployment scale up. Um, we got the money directly to people, the $1,200. We put money into hospitals and some into education, but most into schools, mostly into hospitals and local governments. That was inadequate, we know. I mean, it was, it was way more than zero, which is what McConnell was doing. Um, but so we, need to steal. We, need, we didn't focus in the last round. We didn't focus in a real Marshall Plan for public health. And that means we've got to put real money into testing, doing whatever it takes to build the supply chain so that we can, from cotton swabs to the reagents and everything else you need um, for the testing, um, and that's working with a lot of local hospitals, teaching hospitals, getting them to scale up in other ways. And then we have to put real money into track contact tra- tracing, contact tracing. That means you hire lots of medical students. They're doing that in Ohio already. You hire lots of medical students. You hire a lot of people who are in the health sciences who will, if one of you is, is sick, you've been diagnosed, they understand how to do this. They call you, talk to you, interview you. Whom have you talked to in the last two weeks? Then they talk to them. And that's going to be an expensive undertaking where you need to hire a lot of people to do it. If we don't do that, our economy will continue to be closed and weak. And we we just flatten the curve is not good enough. And any health expert will say what we're doing now is at best flatten the curve. I got two uh, more quick questions for you, or hopefully quick. One is uh, you signed a letter the other day criticizing the president's signing statement, which put restrictions on the new special inspector general that was created to monitor how the bailout funds were going to be spent. Now, since then, the president has named that new inspector, special inspector general. It's uh, Brian Miller, a member of the White House Counsel's Office, although previously an IG from GSA. I wanted to get your perspective on that, on the appointment, and whether those restrictions that the president put on is going to undermine the purpose of the office. Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer for sure on the second part. The first part is I sat across from uh, Secretary Mnuchin well over six feet away um, in these negotiations. There were about a dozen of us who did a lot of the negotiations um, in the Senate and talked to him about that. He made commitments that this would be a legitimate inspector general, that this transparency requirements on the money that he controls is legitimate and strong. 
that um, he wasn't just going to reward like the Trump administration typically does reward their friends even more than former presidents did. We're all concerned. This nominee to pick the president, one of the president's lawyers to do oversight on the president. Um, you don't need to explain it much more than that. that. So, so what we do is we keep the pressure on. We keep, we have an aggressive news media in this country, investigative reporters. There aren't enough of you, but you, you're all aggressive and shining the light on what they do. And it, it speaks to how much we need a change in November. Last question. There's been talk. I think uh, Chairman Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee introduced a bill last week for a 9-11 type commission to investigate how we got here to where we are. You were early on. I noticed uh, last year you'd written a letter about the White House's uh, decision to shut down the uh, global pandemic office in the National Security Council. Others saying maybe it's not the right time in the middle of an emergency to begin investigations like this what's your take on the need for a full-scale investigation and when it should take place well of course there is a need um the the immediate need is to make sure they're spending this money right now right when um they're lending it out to small businesses and helping employers and doing that to bring people back to work that's where the oversight should be now um i agree with adam schiff on most things and on this i agree too um, that we, but, but there's not going to be, McConnell will not let a law pass, a bill pass the Senate to do that. But it's pretty clear that letter back in May of 2018, or April, I think, in 2018, President Trump eliminated the, the, the there was an admiral, Admiral Timothy Zemer, that oversaw, he oversaw an office of 40 people in the White House. It was a, basically a pandemic detection office. He surveilled the world looking for epidemics, communities, epidemics in countries and, and regions and that might have potential to be pandemics and to address the issue immediately, sending out public health officials, preparing the U.S., all that. Trump eliminated that office. I sent him a letter about about two weeks later saying, uh, please reinstate it. Give me the reasons you you eliminated. He didn't, of course. And at the same time, we've seen a decade of cuts to public health spending, starting with the Tea Party belief that in 2011, that there is no role for government in this. Well, if we haven't seen a role for government now, you, you're either you're such a right wing extremist, you'll never you'll never will see it. But it's pretty clear that we made significant mistakes in public health in the last decade, exacerbated by Trump's decisions in the last two years, and especially since January when we should have been prepared and he was still denying it. Senator, I wanted to ask you about your hazard pay plan, but my producer is telling me we have to wrap. Do you have time to talk about it or, or do you need to go? Sure. Yeah, I, I can do it. Sure. OK. All right. Yeah. No, I'll, let me your just. Your producer's not sitting in the studio. <laughs> he sends well, us text messages. We're, <laughs> we're very. Oh, those are scary. Oh, <laughs> gosh, text All right. Uh, so, Senator, uh, I understand you have a plan, a hazard pay plan for workers who are on the front lines. That would be time and a half paying workers like doctors, nurses, grocery store workers, uh, building cleaners, transit workers, and the like. Is this something that the Trump administration has embraced? Uh, where are you on that plan? They've made a couple comments. They don't seem hostile to it, but um, we'll see. I mean, I, we've got to convince Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Um, it would have to be part of the next um, Recovery Act bill, the next coronavirus number four. And it's, you know, if some people have immediately said, well, we should, we should give bonuses of some kind or more pay to the people on the front lines, and they think of doctors and nurses and 
people at the hospitals, but it should be way broader than that. You know, most of us are doing what you're doing. You're working from home. You're still getting paid. A lot of people are working or are home and unemployed and getting unemployment insurance and the, and the $1,200 check. But there are a whole lot of people, delivery people, bus drivers, uh, custodians, security people, people that stock the shelves in, in, um, in grocery stores and the checkout clerks. All of them are exposed every day, potentially. And they're often in jobs that aren't good paying jobs. I mean, the doctors and the nurses make good, strong middle-class wages or, or better. But um, a whole lot of the supermarket people and the delivery men and women and the, the guy or the woman that drives the, the RTA bus in Cleveland or Coda in Columbus are not, they're getting a decent union wage, but they're not all that well paid. And, and we owe it to all of them that are, ex- that are, that are exposing Since we're defying our producer here, I have one last really quick question, which is Ohio postponed its primary until June. How confident are you at this point that you're going to be able to have a a primary in which uh, people can really come out and and, and vote? Or is this going to be a a really low turnout? Um, I think it probably will be a low turnout just with all that's gone on. And people forgetting there's a presidential primary season now, but uh, the, the, the governor mostly did it right on this. And, but the good, the good news here is that, that the election now is not a go to the polls election. Um, it's still probably too dangerous. And you have trouble getting poll workers, all that. And turnout would be low. It's everybody can vote by mail or can vote early at the boards of elections around the country, around the state. So I, I'm hoping this is a template for November that, we should have everybody should be able to vote by mail in November and early voting. And that's the best way to get a good turnout. It's the best way, regardless of the situation we're in, in terms of the pandemic. Um, it's the best way to, to, to conduct the elections. But you still that's what we do is you still need something like 27 states to go to voting by mail. I mean, that's uh, do you see that happening and who's going to lead that effort? I don't know if I see it happening. I know that Senate Democrats and House Democrats are following a lot, and in many ways, the guidance of Stacey Abrams. It's worth looking at her website and see what she suggests we do for our voting system. And we put a lot of money in the Recovery Act. We put about $400 million in, but that's probably a billion plus short of what we need to do an election by mail. But these are extraordinary times. I assume McConnell won't go along, but maybe the pressure builds so that he does. Trump Trump just says everybody votes and the Democrats will win and he's against it. But um, I don't think that necessarily follows if everybody votes and Democrats win. But I think it's the best way to run an election system, to, yeah. to want everybody to vote and make it as possible, as easy as possible. Well, uh, Senator, thank you. Uh, stay safe uh, there in Cleveland. And um, we hope to have you back. It's an honor to be on with both of you, and I look forward to doing it in the studio again someday. With or without your damn producer. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, keep Walter and Franklin safe. By the way, I I should tell you the... The uh, 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 our producer texted in the middle of this, re- telling us to remind you he's an Ohio native. So you just uh, offended a constituent there. <laughs> yeah, voting family members in Ohio. Uh, he does yeah, I think he does. Yeah. <laughs> so he, too late now. You just lost a couple of votes uh, in Warren. All right. See you. Thanks. Okay, All right. Thank care. you. Thanks a lot.
Looks like they have a rent-a-mob Soros bus here. How do you know that? I just saw it out the window. You Looks have like. no evidence to suggest that is a Soros mob <laughs> bus. Then he goes and tweets it. Are we trending? That's the real question. He's just created fake news. That's a clip from the new HBO documentary, After Truth, about the spread of fake news, a plague that has uh, been all-consuming for those of us in the media business for quite some time. Uh, we now have with us the uh, executive producer of After Truth, Brian Stelter. Brian, you know him well as the uh, anchor of Reliable Sources, and he's the chief media correspondent for CNN. Brian, welcome to Skullduggery. It's an honor to be here. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you for having me. Well, that's great to hear. And um, let me, uh, you obviously made this film before the COVID-19 crisis, but a lot of the themes that you explore here about how and where fake news comes from, how it's created, how others manipulate it for political purposes, seem to be relevant to what we're seeing right now with the pandemic. Tell us to what degree you see that to be the case. Yeah, I, I even think back to 2014 when a different outbreak happened. The Ebola outbreak shocked the world and captivated the world. And one of the first times anybody used the term fake news was actually in relation to Ebola in 2014. Craig Silverman of, of BuzzFeed noticed these truly actually made up stories spreading in the United States, trying to scare Americans about Ebola. It was total BS. He called it what it was, fake news. And you know, up until the 2016 election, that term actually meant something. We actually, when we, when we used the term fake news, we meant made up stories designed to deceive people. Of course, the president uh, has redefined that term and exploited it for his own purposes. But the, the issue of totally made up stories is still very real. It's just so much more sophisticated now. What we tried to do in this film is show five years of examples of how, how fake news is getting more sophisticated. And how we really shouldn't even use that term anymore, right? Because it has been exploited and co-opted. It's about misinformation and disinformation. Obviously, there's a lot of misinformation that just is accidental. You know, if I tell you to go the wrong way down the street, I guess that's misinformation, but I'm not trying to hurt you. But disinformation is really a much bigger problem. And with this COVID-19 outbreak, we have seen disinformation uh, spreading across social media. Okay, I was going to say, certainly one of the offenders that you have highlighted is uh, Fox News and the degree to which they were conveying the president's messaging in January, February, that there was nothing to worry about with the virus, that it was under control, that it was all going to wash away. Do you see that as a, a sort of deliberate disinformation or uh, you know, a news outlet um, listening to what the president of the United States is saying, having some of their own scientists seem to give it credence to it. I mean, is it misinformation or disinformation? <laughs> uh, I am working through these thoughts actually right now for a, a book that I'm finishing about Fox News and the Trump age. And there obviously has to be a different ending to the book now uh, that we, we are all experiencing this pandemic together uh, alone, but together. And, and I think when it comes to Fox, a lot of it was just misinformation, meaning not malicious, not, not you know, designed it to, to hurt people. You know, I, I view a lot of what happens in primetime on Fox News as just getting through the day 
the way President Trump tries to get through the day, right? Like Sean Hannity will say whatever he has to say to get to the end of the hour and defend Trump at all costs. And then if he has to change his story completely, he will the next day to get through that next day. Like uh, that's a lot of what I see from the president and from folks like Sean Hannity. But that said, you, you do have to wonder about just how extreme the attempts were to downplay this virus in late February and early March, not just on Fox, but also from Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing radio hosts. Some of this was so outrageous and, and so indefensible. Uh, and, and the way you know it's indefensible is they made a U-turn. You know, they, 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 they totally changed their narrative. And now what we're seeing from Fox is a different problem. We're seeing them hyping drugs, promoting drugs that are unproven. That's a, that's a whole other kind of strain of misinformation. But I... To go out there and say it's, you know, equivalent to a foreign government's propaganda operation and disinformation, I think might be too far. What do you think? Am I giving them too much benefit of the doubt or? <laughs> well, you know, it, it makes me th wonder, Brian, if that U-turn that you referred to, you know, because in the first few weeks, clearly they were towing the president's line. And that was meant that a lot of very bad information was getting out there, which clearly had impact. And then they did that U-turn. Part of the reason, I think, is because we are now living in a moment where scientists and physicians you know, are all over the airwaves. The facts really mean something. They mean the difference between life and death. And I wonder if there is anything you see in Fox's evolution in this story that gives you any hope that over time, some of these issues, you know, that, that there's a, a chance that things could change. That I know, I know that may sound um, Pollyannish, and once this crisis subsides, well, we may just be back where we are. But what do you draw from this? Is there anything that gives you any hope? Tucker Carlson gives me hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I know I'm going to get ridiculed for saying those words. But um, whatever his uh, intentions may have been, whatever his motivations may have been, and, and some people say that he was motivated by a racial, uh, by a racist uh, point of view, he was on this very early, talking about the coronavirus, blaming China, talking about the threat. You know, a number of others of Fox were as well. There, is, there are different points of view on Fox's air, and that's important to recognize and, and uh, respect. Yeah, and Tucker is very close with Lachlan Murdoch, the ultimate head of the company. Another, another, you know, positive, perhaps, I don't know if this is positive or not, but another thing I would point out is scrutiny does seem to work. In some cases, shame seems to work. You know, some of these fringe actors, when sufficiently called out and shamed, do change their tune. If some of these crazy people that were saying, film your hospital lately, go outside your hospital, look how empty the parking lot is. This must be a conspiracy. It's not really that bad inside. You know, this, this crazy stuff. I watched on Twitter as people reacted to those ridiculous claims and tried to push back and tried to rebut it. And I think that actually does have an effect, at least around on the edges. It's, it's not scrutiny. Scrutiny does have some positive well, effects. Uh, well, at the end of the day, Fox is a business. And so there must be pressure points that can affect its, uh, its, its behavior. Right. Ultimately, it's a subscription revenue and an advertising revenue business. The subscription revenue is the most important, but the advertisers are also very important. Fox's ratings are very high right now, just like ratings for all other television news programming. And it remains to be seen if, you know, February and March has any impact on the company's reputation going forward. I tend to, you know, be of the view that the Fox base is extraordinarily strong, just as the Trump base is extraordinarily strong. And there's very little that can be done to change that. 
Um, and certainly I'm not trying to change that, but I know there are liberal advocates out there at Media Matters and elsewhere that, that want to destroy, Fo that, you know, well, that's what Fox says, right? Fox says <laughs> Media Matters wants to destroy them. I'm reciting that line back, I guess. Certainly there, there are liberals out there, progressive groups out there that want to, to shrink Fox's influence. I am of the view that that is almost impossible because they have for 20 years told their viewers not to trust anybody else. It's incredibly powerful, isn't it? But Fox News can be shamed by, I mean, and a great example of it is one of the cases you um, explore in the film, the bogus Seth Rich conspiracy stories. Fox News pumped it for eight days in uh, May of 2017 and then backed off when it was shame. The family came forward and said, you know, you are doing unbelievable harm to us and advertisers started to raise objections and they but, but, dropped but, but, it. But, but never apologized. But as, never as, apologized. Uh, the yes. movie points out. Right. And, um, and of course, uh, I'll do the plug so you don't have to. Your all's podcast, Conspiracy Land, has so much material about Seth Rich. I, I mind that when I was working on my book recently. When you go back and revisit that story, it is newly appalling. It's really one of the low points in the history of Fox News. And and to the to the note that they have not apologized, that's absolutely true. There's never been a real acknowledgement of what went wrong. Absolutely. And the the internal investigation that they promised has never been uh, made public if if it was ever completed. And there's ongoing lawsuits involving this. But I wanted to get to the point in the clip we played to start this segment. You have we uh, heard from this guy, Jacob Wall and another character who is in your film and was in our podcast, Jack Berkman, and they literally have no shame. Uh, they literally are beyond being shamed and have continued to make these completely bogus claims. And Berkman is quite candid in your film saying, hey, this is just a weapon we use for political purposes. Yes, and he compares this to chemical weapons in World War One. And if one side is developing chemical weapons, the other side has to develop them as well. Uh, it's an eerie moment, and I got to give credit to the director of the film, Andrew Rossi, for for pulling this out of Berkman. He's the one that was able to sit down with with uh, Berkman and, and Wall and and put microphones on them and, and watch them in action. And what we see in the film is uh, Berkman and Wall trying to uh, shame and uh, smear Robert Mueller. Gosh, do you remember the Robert Mueller story? Remember? The oh yeah, it was so wild. And and yeah. how we thought it was, but but you know, you see them trying to smear the uh, the Mueller uh, investigation, and ultimately just embarrass themselves. I agree with you that those folks have no shame. That's true, but they still remain very much um, kind of on the fringe, so to speak. And I think the Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's have so much more influence. But some of these pretty terrible conspiracy theories do start on the fringes with the Jacob Walls of the world and then make their way into the mainstream, into into the Sean Hannity program and other programs. And ultimately, I think that is where this is this is the problem. So executives of Fox News know the coronavirus is a severe threat. And they instituted a bunch of changes in March to acknowledge that. But at the end of the day, Sean Hannity and other Fox stars are there and, and they believe they have to continue to support President Trump. That's what their viewers want. That's what their listeners want. It's what their ratings depend on. So if the president continues to get things wrong and downplay the virus and make misstatements and promote unproven drugs, then they feel pressure to do the same. And I think that's ultimately where this tension is, you know, between um, what the Fox management knows to be true and what the, what the reporters there know to be true versus what the opinion stars are doing. 
this, this, that's the tension that I still see existing every day when it comes to this current story. So, Brian, the other major platform that comes off looking pretty bad in, in your movie is Facebook, of course. And the accusation, of course, is that Facebook is the platform for all of this uh, disinformation, misinformation, propaganda that's out there and has never acknowledged that it has any responsibility for it. How have you seen Facebook's conduct during this whole coronavirus crisis? Because I think I've heard people say that the social media platforms actually have stepped up more than they had in the past. I sure think they have. Don't you think they have? Yeah, I mean, that's what it looks like to me. But, you know, I'm curious because they really come off as other than Fox as the main villain in your movie. And actually, uh, to go back to a point that you were making before about the sort of arms race, one of the things I thought was fascinating about the movie was that one person who embraces that logic of you can't unilaterally disarm, you can't leave the field to the other side, we have to be right there as well, was Matt Osborne, who is a Democrat, and this uh, Alabama project, which was emulating what the right had done in this country, and in, in terms of putting out disinformation to suppress the vote in that Senate race uh, back in, I guess it was 2017 with uh, uh, Doug Jones. And his logic essentially was, well, they're doing it. We have to do it as well. We're not going to uh, unilaterally disarm here. And if that's the logic, and if both sides embrace that, then how are you ever going to deal with this problem? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then it just gets more sophisticated. It's like a snowball rolling downhill picking up momentum and speed as it rolls down the hill in a very ugly way. And it was important to us in making this documentary that we show an example of Democrats, of liberals using made up stories or or misleading stories in order to influence public opinion. Because although this is very, very prominent on the right, there are examples of this on the left, and that's got to be acknowledged. I, I do think it's a situation where the weapons that are being used on the right are, are much stronger and more sophisticated and more powerful. But who knows if that'll always be the case or not? Who knows if that'll change over time? The the clip that we use in the film from 2016, where Mark Zuckerberg, just a few days after the election, says he thinks the idea that fake news affected the election is a crazy idea. And that's what he said, you know, in November 2016. Crazy idea. From there to where Facebook is today, the company has come a long way. And you know, I think we got to acknowledge that and give a little bit of credit. Like Zuckerberg and others have come a long way in acknowledging their influence, their power, the potential for, uh, for, for so many terrible actions on the platform. And look, we do see with COVID-19, because this is not about politics, really, but it's about public health, these social networking companies seem more willing and able to take action to protect the community. It's where this enters the realm of politics that they want to stay hands off. And I don't know if that's sustainable or not. Maybe this experience where they are taking down disinformation and and lies and, and things that can hurt you, maybe that approach will extend over time to politics. I mean, is there a legitimate distinction there between politics and health safety? I mean, politics, you are more in the realm of First Amendment protected speech than you are when you're talking about facts that literally can kill if they're wrong. Right. And when the president is um, and, and I don't and I'm not trying to, you know, look, what he's doing with hydrochloroquine is it's complicated and I'm not a doctor. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the judge of it. But he's out there touting a drug that has not really been proven that his own medical experts are, are concerned about the, the efficiency of 
you know, what does Facebook do with those links? That's then it does get really complicated really quickly, doesn't it? Well, let's let's talk about what CNN does or should do with um, some of the president's comments. <laughs> right <laughs> now, you know, clearly there has been this ongoing controversy debate about the president's uh, now daily news briefings, uh, you know, for well over a year, uh, you and others had criticized the White House for not having press briefings in which reporters can ask the president questions. Now he's doing them on a regular every night uh, or every late afternoon and a lot of flack about should CNN and other cable networks be covering them because the president says things that don't check out. I think this is kind of a tough dilemma. I know what I how I come down on it, but I want to hear your thoughts about the coverage of the president's briefings. I think Americans deserve both frequent and accurate briefings. So I think we should start there. I get a lot of trolls in my Twitter feed these days saying, you wanted briefings. Now you're getting daily briefings and you're still complaining. Well, <laughs> I am critical of the mis and disinformation at the briefings. Yes. When there are falsehoods and, and, and ludicrous statements made at briefings, we got to call that out. So I think we should we deserve both frequent and accurate briefings. Right now we're getting frequent briefings, but we're not getting accurate briefings. So what do we do in that context? What should right. we do? It's easy for me to say because I don't uh, have to make this decision and because I don't have the, um, the job of resource allocation to make this happen. But if I could make this happen, here's what I would do. I would air the briefing on a slight delay, just a few minutes probably of a delay. And I would interrupt. I would have fact checkers and anchors come on and pause the briefing and explain when something doesn't check out. And a great example of this is the president recently saying that uh, everybody who flies or takes a train gets tested when they leave and when they arrive, like when they take off and when they land, they get tested for COVID, which is obviously untrue. Maybe it should be true, but it's not true. Wish it was true, it's not true. So if we hear that at the briefing, he said it multiple times in multiple days, we would then pause the, the channel, we pause the briefing, come on, explain that that's not true, and then resume the briefing. Because here, here's the thing, Michael, I think people should hear the briefing even when it's faulty. Here's the here's what I think is the problem with that approach. And this speaks to larger issues about how you cover this particular president. For a lot of people, CNN has come off as overly adversarial to the president. You're challenging him on his comments, many of which are legitimately deserve to be challenged, some of which maybe not as much or maybe not with the same ferocity that you go after him compared to misstatements by people on the other side of the political spectrum. And when CNN does that, it can very easily be seen as a political adversary of the president rather than an independent news organization. So the question is, if, you, if you're going to interrupt the president or not carry what he what the president of the United States is saying about a national emergency, are you feeding the perception that you are the adversary of the president rather than an independent voice. And, you know, I think to some degree, people would like to hear what the president says, knowing that some of it is going to be false, some of it's going to be true, but he is the president of the United States. He does have, you know, people we do want to hear from standing behind him, Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, some of the others. I don't see this as an easy call, but I just wonder whether at times CNN overdoes it. 
this is why I think we should show the briefing, but just uh, almost like annotate it, you know, almost. But but you you don't do that with your interviews with other politicians. You don't oh, do it. Sure. When, when at, no, no, you don't interrupt a live interview with, you know, Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi or uh, Adam Schiff and saying, hey, we want to tell you some of what they are saying is not true. You don't do that with others. It's almost like I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a referee that f- throws a flag and says, flag right. on the play. Here's what was in- incorrect. But we do have to recognize there is a there is more there is a greater amount of bogus information coming from the president than there is from any other senior politician in the United States. And um, if, if Governor Cuomo at his daily briefings was saying as many things that were faulty, then I think we would have to put in similar uh, 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 you know, changes to the coverage of, of Governor Cuomo. Well, is it, is it plausible, Brian? Is it pl- I mean- how he's broken the system, right? That's how Trump has broken the news system, because he, because he has found ways to go out there, get attention, say a lot of things that are untrue and confuse the public. He also, he kind of breaks what are our norms for the news business. And yes, it makes us come across as adversarial, but I think we just have to keep saying over and over again, we're the advocate for the viewer. We're not the advocate for the president or the Democrats. We're the advocate for the viewer. And we just wanna get to as close to the truth as possible every day while knowing we're not gonna always get it perfect. Is that too um, journalism professory for you? I mean, I just wonder if in the real world, when you're when you're going up against your competitors, uh, MSNBC and Fox and others, if you really if if you plausibly can stop when your competitors are are going on and and you're going to and I I just don't see that happening. Hit me in my in the soft spot right there. That's that's the part a lot of people don't appreciate. I get about 100 emails a day right now from from viewers or readers or non viewers who say, stop carrying the briefings. And obviously the the complication is knowing what the rival networks are doing. I was in the chair on Sunday morning during Cuomo's briefing and I was texting my wife and my producer saying, is Fox still carrying the briefing? Is MSNBC still carrying the briefing? Anybody who tells you they don't care about what their competition is doing is lying. I I think when it comes to the president though, it's a little more complicated because we're gonna have to fact check it afterwards anyway, right? Fox generally is not gonna fact check it. MSNBC is, CNN is. So yeah. if we could fact check it more closer to real time, then I think that would be, well, you know, yeah. so I definitely well, think one, you should the, fact the, check it. The one it, thing, but, yes, yeah. uh, I mean, the, no, no and, question. And about I think that. the one thing that uh, everybody should do, and and by the way, just for the sake of transparency, we at Yahoo News, we've been taking the feed as well. So you you can ask the same questions of me, Mike, and uh, you know, and I and I pretty and much I agree. <laughs> I pretty much agree with with Brian. I mean, a big part of the reason it's really important to show this is because those experts are up there, and they have given valuable information. You know, Fauci and Deborah Burks every day at a time when. Man, if there if there wasn't a time when our public health professionals have to communicate to the widest number of Americans possible, now is that time. But I will say that there have been at least one time when the president took this opportunity to promote a a policy initiative, a, a drug initiative that had certain political overtones with the attorney general and others up there. I think CNN cut away. I don't know for sure. We cut away from that. And I think that is important to do, not allow the president to exploit that opportunity for political purposes beyond what he's what he does. That's right. And let me add one other wrinkle to this, because I we talk often I talk often in black and white. Right. Um, It's either true or false. It's uh, uh, true or it's a lie. A lot of what he says at these briefings is not it's not on that spectrum. 
a lot of ways doing these briefings is either overly optimistic or um, dismissive in a way that's disturbing. Or, you know, he talks about his popularity on Facebook, which is beside the point and inappropriate for a world leader in the middle of a crisis. A lot of what happens in these briefings that really ticks off viewers or disturbs reporters is not fact-checkable, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the other reality of this that I think is really difficult to talk about sometimes. When he gets up there and says something that's untrue, that's easy to check. When he gets up there and promotes false hope, that's a lot harder to fact-check. And ultimately, that's a leadership failure that is a lot harder to deal with. Uh, Brian, I got one last question for you, and that's just basically give us a, some perspective on what it's been like for CNN to be covering this unbelievable crisis. You've got two anchors, Chris Cuomo and uh, Brooke Baldwin now, who have are infected. It's got to be a, worrisome for a lot of people that there may be others. Uh, just give us a, a little bit of um, inside view of what it's been like inside CNN during all this? The network has changed dramatically, just like every major media company has had to, to enact drastic changes. And these happened over a period of a couple of weeks. First, there was a suggested work from home order for staffers who could work from home, mostly digital staffers and producers. Then work from home became essentially mandatory, except for the staffers that have to keep the network on the air. And that's the thing about television that's unique that we're seeing at NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN, uh, and, and to some extent, streaming networks like Yahoo and, and, and radio networks. There's a certain number of personnel that have to be in the building to keep these networks operational and online. And I'm so grateful for the technical staffers and the engineers who are doing that for us, because we've, we've basically, what we've done is we've shrunk down to the, the smallest number of staffers that you physically need in the buildings in New York and Atlanta and DC and London, et cetera, in order to keep the network on the air. You know, we've even shrunk down some of the hours of programming on HLN, for example, so that the, the primary CNN US channel has the staff it needs. So there's been all that kind of resource allocation that's happened. And then for television anchors, like myself on, on Sunday mornings, I'm going into the studio, but my entire staff is working remotely. So I've got a producer in Connecticut and one in Maryland and one in New York, you know, and they're spread out like that. But I'm going into the studio and most CNN anchors are still working from studios, but with nobody around, no camera. The, the camera is run by a, a robot, by a person in another room. We're doing our own makeup, you know, our own hair, which I know doesn't matter, but it doesn't change. <laughs> it, it does help to keep it safe. Uh, and maybe it's noticeable on me. If you, if you notice, I look yeah. like a different color these days. Uh, you know, there, there's those sorts of changes. And, uh, and then in some cases, people are working uh, and anchoring from home. My wife, Jamie, for example, is an anchor on New York. One here in New York City, and uh, every morning at 5:30, I fire up her camera, fire up the lights, white balance the camera, and she anchors from our guest bedroom. So we've seen those changes throughout television news. That um, that it just you know we, we just stop and think about it. It's it's certainly not the most important thing in the world, but it is incredible how media companies have had to adapt and change in you know in, in just in in ways that are 
really strange, if we're yeah. being honest. Right. You know, uh, you got Definitely. my three-year-old crying in the next room, and my wife is anchoring her newscast. It's it's a strange time. And we're doing this podcast remotely from each of our respective homes. But listen, uh, Brian, hang in there. Uh, needless to say, uh, there's lots of people out there that depend on getting reliable news and look to CNN to do it. Uh, so um, best of luck. And uh, I should say everybody should take a look at HBO's film After Truth, which is a great exploration of an important issue. You know, I thought I was going to have so much time to binge watch television and watch documentaries, but uh, but not really. Not with two kids at home. Yeah. Yeah. And for everybody else, After After Truth has been re-airing on HBO. It's airing this Friday at 4 p.m., for example. But it, it's mostly available on demand. That's the easy way to find it, as, as with everything else these days. After everybody gets done watching Tiger King, they could they should go to uh, After Truth. Okay. Well, I, I want you to know I have not watched Tiger King, and I have watched After Truth. And uh, wow. it's, it's a terrific documentary. And uh, stay, stay safe and healthy, Brian. Same to you. Thanks to Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown and CNN's chief media correspondent, Brian Stelter, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.